Production support comes from Closets 2, providing organized and expanded closet and storage space for home, office, and garage using a variety of systems with no major renovations. Closets 2, owned and operated in Bloomington, 332-2233. Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, phone, and security services. Smithville. Local Pride, Global Technology. Information at smithville.net. Mother Bear's Pizza of Bloomington, open daily and offering gourmet pizzas, hot submarine sandwiches, and salads with daily specials. Menu available online at motherbearspizza.com. 332-4495 for delivery. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with Mary Catherine Carmichael. And today we're going to talk about prostate cancer. Uh, join us, joining us in the studio are three guests today, radiation oncologist Dr. David Lee, summit urology physician assistant David Elkins, and prostate cancer survivor Tim Jessen. You can join us on the program by calling 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. Or you can also uh, join the discussion at our website, wfiu.org slash noon edition. Welcome to all of you. Thanks for being here. Thank Thank you you so much for having us. And uh, I wanted to start with Tim because Tim, uh, actually, we were doing a program on on breast cancer awareness and and mammographies and Tim called the program and said – just wanted to mention prostate cancer is something that we don't read a lot about or mm-hmm. hear a lot about or do radio programs they about. They don't have any cute pink ribbons for them. No, and no, yeah. no, no pink ribbons. So we decided uh, – although there might be a color for prostate cancer. I'm not they sure. have a nice blue ribbon. A blue do ribbon, they? Yeah. Who knew? OK. That's, we need to get that information out. <laughs> so uh, I, I thought I would ask Tim you know, why, you, why you called, what moved you to call and uh, what you thought a program like this could accomplish. Thank you, Bob. And I like to listen to Noon Edition as often as I can. And I always appreciate your awareness of public issues. I was diagnosed with prostate cancer about um, three years ago in the fall of 2006. And in 2007, after consulting with Dr. Lee and David Elkins and some other fine people, I had a prostatectomy. And uh, my cancer was diagnosed uh, fairly early and I don't have any um, need for any further, further treatment, although I, you know, I, I, I check – uh, fairly regularly on it. And uh, David Elkins asked me to try to get together a prostate cancer support group and we've been doing that for about the last year but without uh, a whole lot of success. Um, we've had people come uh, to one meeting and then they didn't come back to the next meeting. And I know that in this community there have to be lots and lots of men and also their spouses or partners that are concerned about this uh, disease and its effects. So uh, when I began to see all the pink ribbons all over the place, everywhere you go, grocery store, everywhere, mm-hmm. the newspaper printed in pink, I began to page, that's right. thinking why can't men get some of the same attention uh, on this issue and I don't begrudge anything that is directed towards uh, treatment of, of breast cancer. But I do think prostate cancer is a, is a great killer. I had a friend that uh, died recently of it whose diagnosis came too late and he wasn't able to be uh, treated. And so I'm just concerned about it and would like to get other uh, persons in the community involved in in a support group or to be able to talk about it. Okay. Well, we need a little anatomy lesson I think because honestly, I don't even know the function of the prostate. Well, that's a common question. People come in and you know, they have their PSA test drawn and uh, all this talk about the prostate. But a lot of men don't even know what it is. They know it's in there somewhere, but they don't know exactly <laughs> what it is or what it does. So the prostate is a uh, gland that is res- responsible and helpful in uh, reproduction. It's actually a reproductive organ and is responsible for secreting all of the fluid that actually is ejaculated during uh, intercourse to reproduce and nourish the uh, semen. Uh, and transport it into the uh, vagina while it uh, fertilizes the egg. So, mm-hmm. you know, as uh, as it stands, it's a sexual reproductive organ. And uh, as time goes on and you don't need it for reproduction anymore, it starts causing problems with uh, uh, things like prostatic enlargement and, and even worse, prostate cancer. Mm-hmm. All right. I should say uh, probably early in the program that I too am a, uh, am a prostate cancer survivor and I had a prostatectomy about 
three and a half years ago. So uh, this is an interesting program for me to be on as well. We have a phone call already. Let's go to the phone. Zach, go ahead. Hello. I have a question. And the question is regarding the survivorship that people advertise and people talk about. And I have found out that that is maybe no longer than five years from the time that they've been diagnosed. My dad died of prostate cancer, and most of the other male members of my immediate family have died of prostate cancer. But the question is, how are the different treatments effective in terms of actually determining survivorship beyond the five-year period that the prostate cancer has been diagnosed. Dr. Lee, can you handle that? Uh, Yes. Uh, It all depends on the characteristics of the prostate cancer. Uh, They're stratified into three main groups. One is the low-risk category, the other one is intermediate-risk category, and the other one is the high-risk category. Usually, the low-risk category are the very favorable type of prostate cancers. They usually have what's called the Gleason grade, which is a very important prognostic factor. The best way to think about it is how ugly it looks under the microscope. Gleason 6 or less are the ones that are slow-growing. Those are the ones that if you have a lot of medical problems, you can even watch and don't even get active therapy for, except for surveillance. And those are the treatments that are designed just to treat the prostate because there's a very high chance that all the disease is in the prostate. So the types of procedures for the, that type of treatment can be a prostatectomy, rather by a radical or the robotic. It could be external beam radiation therapy due with vol- uh, multiple ways of doing that, and also a prostate seed implant. So it just concentrates on the prostate. And for those in the low-risk category, they tend to do very well. They have a 5 to 10-year survival rate of 85 to 90-plus. And fortunately, that was probably the category that both of these people were in. The high-risk category are the ones you hear horror stories about. Those are the ones that go to bone, to lymph node. Those are the ones that are very aggressive. Those are the ones that have Gleason 8, 9, and 10, meaning that they're very ugly under the microscope. Gleason gray, by the way, is made out of two numbers, and it's from a 1 to 5 scale. So for Gleason gray 8, 9, and 10, that means that the common number is at least four or higher, and the second most common number is also four or higher. That's why you get the 2 to 10 score. Mm-hmm. And those are the ones that don't do very well. Those are the ones that we throw everything at them. In other words, we give hormonal therapy, we give treatment to the pelvic lymph nodes, as well as the prostate. And their survival is not as good, but it is okay. It's about 60 to 60, about 60%. And then you have the intermediate, which is the one that has the most widest range of therapy because it all depends on how you look at it. Some people will treat it more like a favorable or a low risk, and other people will treat it more as the more aggressive high risk. But those patients generally have about a 70, 75 percent, 5 to 10 um, year cure rates for that. But these are the people that don't have disease that already spread to the bone, These are the ones that didn't already spread through lymph nodes because for those, they're not curable, but they can be potentially controllable because a lot of times the hormones does keep everything under control for about three to five years. After the five-plus years, when they become hormone refractory, that's when it gets pretty ugly. So the diagnosis of prostate cancer is not really a death sentence. A lot of people think that because if it's caught early enough, there's a lot of good therapies that can uh, obtain a cure. And even if you have disease that already spread elsewhere with hormonal therapy, there's a good chance that we'll be able to control it for multiple years. What's the downside of a prostatectomy? Uh, prostatectomy. Did I say it wrong? I'm sorry. <laughs> Pros- say, it, say it again so I get it right. Pros- Prostatectomy. Prostatectomy. Well, Prostatectomy. Com- Thank coming, you. Coming from the surgical standpoint, because I'm actually involved a lot in the uh, radical prostatectomies, both uh, uh, from a robotic standpoint and an open standpoint, uh, the big fears uh, hit right at the heart of most men. Uh, the biggest one is erectile dysfunction, you know, the inability to have intercourse with their spouse. Um, the other real problem is urinary incontinence or leakage of urine. So that even 
though it's not talked about quite as much, tends to be a real more life-affecting issue. The ability to go back to work, lift heavy objects, play sports, and uh, all of those daily activities tend to be more affected by the incontinence. Um, other surgical complications that can occur with any type of surgery, obviously wound complications, hernias and such are always a possibility. Uh, so any of our surgical treatments with prostatectomy are now aimed at eliminating or minimizing those side effects as much as possible. Uh, one of the big advances has been uh, the recent development of what's called the Da Vinci Surgical Robot, uh, which uh, fortunately we actually brought to Bloomington this year, uh, courtesy of the Bloomington Hospital and uh, my partner, uh, Dr. Dean Lenz. Um, and what that allows is a minimal, uh, minimally evasive approach. So instead of actually making a large incision, we use a series of small robotic ports like a laparoscopy as somebody would take out a gallbladder and actually use those small ports under magnification to remove the prostate. Uh, the other big benefit is magnification, up to 10 times uh, magnification uh, of the nerves that uh, supply the uh, penile uh, erectile tissue. So we can identify those areas, dissect them off of the outside of the prostate and potentially save those. Uh, better uh, connection of the uh, bladder to the urethra, which uh, potentially improves uh, continence rates after surgery. I bet this has come a long way recently and that this surgery is significantly less damaging than it was five years ago. It is, and it's all uh, technique-driven. It uh, comes with experience. Um, you know, The more of these you do, obviously, the better you get at them. Uh, time in the operating room comes down. So, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. But you've still got the scary stuff lurking from before this got quite as uh, um, uh, fine-tuned, if you will. Right. Yeah. I, might, I might add that many of the men that come to the prostate cancer support group, particularly if they've been diagnosed but haven't decided on a method of treatment, they want to know the results of all these various treatments. Sure. You know, how, what is the percentage of erectile dysfunction afterwards or urinary incontinence and the other things. And I remember one guy came to our group, you know, and he had done research you know, to the nth degree to try to figure which would be the outcome, which would be the best for him. And that's one time when our support group can really be of help to people because people mm -hmm. can give their own experiences. Mm -hmm. have, uh, Zach's still on the phone. He has a follow-up question. Zach? Yes, thank you very much. I was able to listen to your uh, responses to my question until my, unfortunately, cell phone quit with this battery. So I'm on my car now so I can hear you. Um, and I would like to know how those different stages of prostate cancer relate to the different PSA values and also the bound versus free values that can be obtained from the PSA. Dr. Lee? Okay. Uh, the PSA has been a controversial subject because uh, what I like to tell patients is that PSA is actually individualized to the person. Because, for example, a PSA of about 8 or 10 may be considered abnormal for one person, but a person with a very large prostate, that may be actually that's what their baseline is. So we're more interested in the trend of the PSA, meaning what it does, if it goes up, down, or how quickly it goes up. So there's something called the PSA velocity, meaning the higher or quicker the PSA goes up. And PSA, by the way, is what's called prostatic-specific antigen. And the thing is that both normal and abnormal prostate cells secrete that. It's just that the abnormal cell secretes a whole lot more of that. So you're going to have a baseline for everybody, but the thing is if that PSA rises sharply, then it's cause for investigation. And a lot of times that's a very good screening test. I know that there's been controversy about the PSA, but the trend is a very important way to pick this up before it gets enlarged or before it gets nodular. This way we can catch it in a much earlier phase. So everybody should get a baseline. Well, then that's another controversy because uh, right now, as in breast cancer, they're kind of fine-tuning how quickly or when people should always get a PSA. Right now, the general guideline is if you're 50 or above, you should get a yearly PSA. Mm -hmm. However, if there's a family history of prostate cancer, or if you're in certain high-risk groups, they even advocated, and this is a controversial part, for as early as 40. The problem is that PSA goes up as you get older. So for patients who are between 40 and 50 years old, they use a baseline as less than greater than 0 
And if it's greater than that, they like to test it annually. However, this is more driven by politics than anything else. Quite frankly, there's a recent uh, data that showed that for cancers such as breast, colorectal, prostate that have very good screening methods, they tend to have better survival, but also we can catch them earlier and they have shown much better improvement with the therapy that we can provide. It's not been that long ago that uh, you know I was under the impression that if anything under 4.0 was mm-hmm. was good for a PSA, and I, I have an annual physical, so you know my experience uh, really confirms your your um, idea about the PSA going up sharply because my PSA had been 1.5, 1 to 1.5 mm-hmm. regularly, and then one year I went in for my physical and it was 3.7. Mm-hmm. So it's still under that four, and if it had been the first physical <clears throat> I had had, probably I wouldn't have been sent on for any further testing. Right. But I had this baseline at 1.1 or 1.5, so I was sent in for, for further testing, and in fact, that's when it was discovered. Right. So. And back to the caller's question, the free PSA is specifically for the borderline ones. Anything around four or so that they're not quite sure what to make of it. So sometimes they get a free PSA just to get more data to see this is, if this is more related to cancer versus just having a large mm-hmm. prostate or other things. Mm-hmm. But pretty much the rise or how quickly it rises is a strong indication that something is uh, going on in that area. But the only definitive way is actually to do a biopsy of the prostate. You can't just go by the number because we're not treating the number. We're treating the prostate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, Zach. Is that good? All right. Zach must be gone. We've got an email that's come in. Um, it says, please ask Dr. Lee to discuss brachytherapy, mm-hmm. the implantation of radioactive seeds into the prostate on the air. Thanks. So, so I'm asking. Okay. Uh, brachytherapy is a good treatment to the prostate only. Uh, because the prostate is wrapped in what's called a prostatic capsule. So anything that goes after the prostate itself, we do a brachytherapy. So it has to be like an early, uh, low-risk type of disease. Or we can combine it for more intermediate or high risk, but it's mostly primary for the ones that are favorable. And that is um, a therapy that we put radioactive seeds in the prostate. What we do is that I work with the urologist, and we both... Uh, work together to hand place radioactive seeds throughout the prostate. And by doing that, we can cover the entire prostate, but if there's one or two areas that have the disease uh, noted by biopsy, we can give a little extra to that region. So the uh, prostate seed implant is an excellent procedure for um, favorable type of prostate cancer, but so is surgery as well. So there are a lot of good choices for the favorable type of patient. Now, I'm not sure uh, who wants to take this on, but I've heard, uh, I've heard it said that prostate cancer, if you live long enough, is a, is a matter of when, not if. Would you take that on? Well, that's a bit difficult to say because we don't biopsy everyone. Um, uh, you know, the incidence obviously goes up as men age. Uh, whether or not a prostate cancer is clinically relevant, uh, you know, you have an 80 or 90-year-old gentleman that mm-hmm. comes in with prostate cancer, um, chances are you may not treat that. You may observe uh, PSA values, follow it along over time. If the patient becomes symptomatic with that, um, in other words, he has difficulty urinating, uh, it may spread to the bone and he may have bone pain. Obviously, those are instances when uh, that prostate cancer would definitely require some type of palliative therapy. All right. Let's. Uh, I want to give a, our phone numbers again: eight five five zero eight one one or eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight. You can also join us at wfiu.org slash noon edition. In fact, when I was uh, diagnosed, my my surgeon at the time told me something like, "Well, you know, you don't have to make a decision right now." When he told me over the phone, he said, "If if you actually chose to do nothing, the kind what." the Gleason number was or whatever whatever he had on me at the time. He said you'd probably you – know, you might live 10 or 15 more years. Right. But you know, you're a pretty young man, so I would recommend you have some, some kind of treatment. <laughs> I'm like, yes, I think yeah. I do. I'm like, and the operating room is available when next <laughs> right. week? Yeah. Well, that's the key. Uh, for the low-risk prostate <laughs> cancer, uh, some people can actually outlive their disease. So we asked them if you will think you'll be around 5, 10 years from now then we would probably recommend treatment since it's detected earlier. But if you have a long list of medical problems or if you don't think you'll be around or there's other things that are going to take you, 
because we're going to all go from something. Our job is to make sure it's not from the prostate. Mm-hmm. I think from the viewpoint of the, the patient, you get all this different advice. Well, try seed mm-hmm. treatment. Try this. Try the other. And uh, I had a brother-in-law who had the seed treatment, and uh, I was all in favor of it until Dr. Lee informed me that it wouldn't work for me. And I'm not going to go into those reasons, but... Uh, so I, can, I can elaborate further on okay. that. Uh, first of all, the prostate seed implant is a good treatment if we're able to treat the entire prostate. There is something called the pubic arch. Think of it as like a frame of a picture. So we have to make sure that for the urologist that they should be able to hit the entire prostate. If there's parts of the prostate that they can't hit because of the pubic bone, then we prefer them to do another type of therapy or we can give them hormones to downsize the prostate. The good thing about the low-risk cancers is they do well with all therapies. So the thing that we do with the urologist is that we kind of coordinate with the urologist to see what is best suited for the individual. Because there's a lot of options available, it's sort of a multidisciplinary approach saying that for this patient, you know, surgery will be better because if we do the implant, we may not be able to cover the entire prostate. So why take a chance on that when there's a perfectly good alternative such as surgery to get rid of the prostate mm-hmm. cancer? Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I might add that uh, something that goes into that consideration would be uh, if a man has symptoms from his prostate, a lot of men as they grow older will have obstructive urinary symptoms, difficulty going to the bathroom. They're up at nighttime many times. So uh, choosing something like a seed implant in a man with a very large prostate and a lot of symptoms may actually make that problem worse because of the inflammation and the swelling that occurs immediately following. So uh, those things all go into the consideration and the therapy is definitely tailored to each individual. Right. We're going to take one more phone call before we go to the break. It's Lyle. Lyle, go ahead. Yes, I have three questions or a question about three things. One, you mentioned uh, refractory hormones and in the latter uh, stages and how uh, it's adverse. Most of us don't know what a refractory hormone means, mm-hmm. I think, out here. And um, um, bacterial infections, can that cause, I mean, like a bladder infection or an uh, inflamed uh, a prostatitis or something, can that cause the PSA to go up kind of rapidly over a short period of time and then come back down? Uh, and then uh, does it ever pre- ever present itself uh, just in a real big hurry? Like uh, can a man go from just having a normal, you know, night getting up once or twice to getting up several times in, in just a couple months and um, with a lot of burning pain behind the, the pelvis right over the penis? Uh, or, or does that sound more like a, a urinary tract infection? Well, it's it's obviously difficult to, to diagnose anything over the, the radio without physically laying hands on. But uh, uh, one of the uh, big things us as urologists do are to sort out these PSA elevations. And we get a lot of patients sent to us with elevated PSA, prostate-specific antigen blood tests. And uh, the big job is to sort out which one of those are, are problems such as prostate cancer and which are from acute prostatitis. Uh, certainly acute prostatitis is probably the uh, – big reason that we see a lot of elevated PSAs that are not prostate cancer. Um, And simply with antibiotic treatment, most of those will come back down to a normal range. Uh, Acute prostatitis, uh, which is an infection of the prostate gland, usually does present relatively acutely with burning with urination, frequency, nighttime voiding. How long does it usually take for a PSA to come back? In other words, how long should a man wait to go back in and have a PSA uh, tested? Typically for prostate uh, prostatitis, I'll treat for four weeks with uh, a quinolone-type antibiotic like Cipro and then usually wait uh, six to eight weeks to reevaluate that PSA. Okay. Um, and then the refractory hormone, uh, you said something about uh, in the latter stages, uh, refractory hormones actually, uh, hormones have something to do with uh, keeping the cancer at bay. Correct. I understand that. Uh, I under- it's my understanding that uh, testosterone at a normal, healthy level, maybe around 500, uh, helps a man to actually keep from developing the disease. But uh, residual uh, hormones that are absorbed into the body cause something to develop. It's a DHT or something like that that actually causes the enlargement of the hormones. I mean, of the uh, uh, prostate. Is that true? 
Well, the prostate is under the effects of the male hormone uh, testosterone, the active uh, uh, form of testosterone within the prostate cells. Uh, so actually we give some, some products like Avidart and Proscar that block the conversion into the active form of testosterone that actually shrinks prostate tissue. Uh, hormone refractory prostate cancer, as it's stated, is uh, basically prostate cancer that does not respond to withdrawal of the male hormone testosterone. One of the uh, therapies that we will give in advanced prostate cancer are medications called uh, LHRH agonists and they actually block the formation of the male hormone testosterone in the body and it's basically considered chemical castration. Before the development of these agents, we would actually surgically castrate patients and that would be to remove the testicles for treatment of prostate cancer. Uh, in the early and intermediate stages, is it common to uh, to do the um, to take the testes too? Now, in uh, earlier intermediate stage, we'd be looking for a, a curative type therapy. So, uh, uh, we'd be looking at more surgical treatments or radiation therapy treatments for those uh, types of tumors. One yes. other question: that Other men might have out on the in the radio. Um, uh, Hormone therapy for older men, like 50 and over, who, who take uh, testosterone, uh, does that increase the chance, uh, on, in, you know, usually for uh, the development over long term? Uh, that's actually been in our literature quite a bit lately. Um, and we do a lot of uh, hormone replacement therapy for males. Uh, that's become uh, very uh, vogue lately. Um, the current thought is that when we are giving uh, supplemental testosterone to these men, we are not trying to get them into what's considered super physiologic states or levels above normal males of that age group. So we may shoot for a testosterone of 500. So we really don't feel that that is putting them at any higher risk than the average male population of their age group. Thank you so much. All right. Dr. Lee, any follow-up? Uh, no, I just want to reiterate, it's not giving testosterone. We're kind of shutting it off. And the uh, hormones is a form of chemical castration, just like Dave Elkin said. So it's a better way because later on when they become resistant to the therapy, that's what meaning by hormone refractory, we can turn on and off the hormones. But if you had your testicles removed, then it's a done deal. You can't really uh, manipulate the hormone management at that time. All right. We're talking about prostate cancer today. We've got three guests in the studio with us, Dr. David Lee, Summit Urology Physician Assistant David Elkins, and prostate cancer survivor Tim Jessen. You're listening to Noon Edition, and we will be right back. listening to Noon Edition on member-supported WFIU. Production support comes from Closets 2, Smithville Telephone, information at smithville.net, and from Mother Bear's Pizza at motherbearspizza.com. You can take WFIU programs with you by downloading our podcasts. Podcasting is a convenient and easy way to download audio files directly to your computer, iPod, or portable player. You can download podcasts of full-length programs like Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia, or short features like Kinsey Confidential, the Ether Game Musical Mini Quiz, as well as movie, play, and opera reviews. Find out more by going to our website, WFIU.org. And have you heard WFIU's news features? On Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, the WFIU news team brings you expanded and in-depth reports on topics affecting south-central Indiana. Listen at 8.33 a.m. and 5.45 p.m. every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to catch that day's feature. If you miss one, that's okay. They're archived on our website, WFIU.org, and the best features from each week can be heard Saturday mornings at 7.45. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg, along with Mary Catherine Carmichael, who actually had to leave us, um, but we have a, a Three great guests here in the studio. Uh, we have radiation oncologist Dr. David Lee, Summit Urology Physician Assistant David Elkins, and prostate cancer survivor Tim Jessen as we discuss prostate cancer. You can join us on the program by calling 855-0811 or 877-285-9348, or you can also um, send us an email or go to our website, wfiu.org slash noon edition. We've got lots of directions we want to go here in the second half of the program, but we have a phone call. We're going to jump right in with that. Mary, go ahead. Oh, 
hi. Uh, good afternoon. Mine is more of a general question. Um, not too long ago, there was an article in the paper about the number of cancers, um, I guess, at Bloomington Hospital that were discovered. And, and the, the article was about the new digital um, mammogram. Anyways, I was, I was somewhat startled at the number of cancers that are being detected, and I was wondering if you could just address that, if Bloomington in this surrounding area is about average um, or is there is are we a little bit higher than average? So that was my question. Okay, Mary, thanks. Dr. Thank Lee, can you address that? Yes, actually, we're above uh, we're about average or so. The reason why, at least for those type of tests, is that we're detecting them much earlier, and with the resolution of the digital mammograms, we're able to pick up smaller lesions uh, much more earlier than we would do with other techniques. And same thing with the PSA, we're detecting a lot earlier, but also the general population is living longer. So the longer you're around, there's always things that can go wrong. So on average, I think Bloomington and the surrounding areas are about on average with the rest of the nation. It's just that we have better screening methods, so we're able to detect these earlier. But that's the key thing is early detection. Because the earlier you detect these type of cancers, the more options and the better results you have with those options. I want to ask about technology because you know, I, I would, when I had my surgery, mm-hmm. I, I have a brother who had surgery, had an open surgery about two years or three years before I had my surgery, which was done by a Da Vinci robot up at IU before Bloomington had its <laughs> robot. And I, I, I have to ask this question, I guess, is, is does everybody need a Da Vinci? I mean, is there – should every, every surgical um, unit have a Da Vinci? Because as I understand it, the learning curve on those machines is pretty high. Uh, that is the case. It, uh, it's definitely uh, not an easy machine to learn. It's uh, – you know, they call it an intuitive machine, but uh, there is a learning curve on it. Um, Certainly the ability to do an open prostatectomy, most surgeons have done that and done large numbers of them. Uh, and it's simply a modification of the technique when you take it over to the da Vinci. Uh, there's also other ways of doing the prostatectomy. Uh, the perineal, which is actually an incision behind the scrotum, which is a, another good way to do it. So to answer the question, no, not all men need a, a da Vinci prostatectomy. Um, a lot of it's market-driven and patient-driven. So it's something that we have to, I think, in a lot of the bigger venues have to offer. Mm-hmm. Okay. We have two phone calls that we're going to go to. Lyle is first. Lyle's back. He has another question. Lyle? Is this Lyle? Hello? Hey, Lyle. I think we lost him. Can we go to our next call? Yeah, go ahead. Is this Joseph? Yes. Yeah, go right ahead. Oh, hi. I wondered, uh, first I want to say I'm glad uh, both Tim and Bob are with us. And after their surgeries, and I wondered if they changed their diet, and is there any relationship? And I've been reading about this about between red meat and reoccurrence. Uh, maybe gentlemen can talk about that issue. Is diet important component in uh, reducing reoccurrence? I'd probably. And how have you guys changed your diet? Well, I'd probably opt for opt to the experts for this, <laughs> but I I I have uh, I have actually a very good diet and have for quite a long time. I don't eat much red meat, and I don't. Nobody's at, none of, my physician has never suggested anything in terms of diet for me. My my wife would probably like me to change my diet, but I, I really haven't uh, changed my uh, eating as a result of the prostate cancer diagnosis. But maybe that one of the yeah, other guys would speak to this. I, I would probably say that uh, the reoccurrence rate uh, boils down to the uh, the time of the procedure, be it a prostatectomy or a radiation, and the success at that time. Uh, there's been a lot of. Uh, Information in our media and our literature about uh, selenium and zinc and these other products as far as prostate health. And the more recent information seems to debunk a bit of that. So uh, that's sort of where it stands at this point. Mm-hmm. Dr. Lee? Uh, I think it's sort of a controversial subject. A lot of these studies say may do this, may do that. So I would say for general health, it's always good to have a healthy diet, but it's not specific to prostate. Like for red meat, it can lower your cholesterol and help with the heart and other things. But there has been no direct correlation with any of those products with prostate cancer. What about uh, saw palmetto? As a, what is that? It's sort of a supplement or something? I've heard that. Is it, does it work? 
Well, there's there's been another uh, <laughs> article after article. Uh, uh, I believe it was the uh, Journal of the American Medical Association uh, did a, a big article on it. Finally, a big research project. A lot of men take it. It's easy to get. It's available at the local pharmacy without a prescription. So men take it. Uh, the theory is that it does shrink the prostate and uh, it may actually play a role in uh, diminishing the PSA value as well. So we have to take that again into consideration when I'm evaluating patients uh, for their PSA tests. Um, being a phytotherapy or a plant-based therapy, there's not a lot of information on it. Uh, companies obviously don't want to research it because there's no money in uh, developing a product from it. Um, but the big research uh, study that came out most recently seemed to debunk its effectiveness. Um, it, men primarily take it for prostate symptoms, so the BPH symptoms of getting up at nighttime and weak stream. What would you tell your patients, Dr. Lee, if they wanted to take it? I would say if it doesn't hurt, why not take it? But I don't think there's any proof one way or the other because all these trials are always conflicting because you're going to have a trial that says positive, others negative. My feeling is that if it makes you feel better as long as you get screening tests, Mm-hmm. That's fine. Okay. Uh, Lyle's back. So we'll get, we'll get Lyle back on the phone for his question. Lyle? We think. Oh, Ari, he's not here. Okay. We, well, Lyle, I guess he, he's not with us. So um, I want to ask about uh, – I asked about saw palmetto. That was actually an emailed question. But are there other uh, preventive measures that you can take that men should take to try to – uh, ward off prostate cancer or protect themselves? Well, most recently, a uh, study from the uh, American Urologic Association, uh, who is our uh, national uh, academic board per se, uh, does show uh, that Avidart uh, and Proscar, which are prostate shrinking medications used for the treatment of BPH, uh, have been linked to lowering the risk of prostate cancer. Now, on the other hand, um, it does lower the risk of prostate cancer overall. In the study, it does show a slightly higher incidence of high-grade prostate cancers when they present. So right. uh, it's a bit of a controversial subject. Um, I haven't completely made up my mind on it yet, uh, believe it or not, uh, looking at the numbers and the way it all plays out. Uh, yes, because Proscar and Avidar uh, can decrease the PSA, so it's kind of harder to detect the trends as well with people on those medications. So if we go by a number and it looks good and they're on the Avidart or the Proscar, we're not quite sure whether it's good because of the medication. And by the time there is a significant jump with the PSA, then it's more of the higher risk categories. Mm -hmm. So I'm a little cautious when they go up even a little bit with the Proscar as well as the Avidart. I sometimes even double what the rise is just to kind of give me a perspective of how quickly the PSA is rising because – that kind of hinders uh, in terms of interpreting the PSA. Although people who have symptoms of BPH or b- benign prostatic hypertrophy, it does help out those symptoms. Mm-hmm. All right. We're talking about prostate cancer today. That the last voice we heard was radiation oncologist Dr. David Lee. We also have Summit Urology Physician Assistant David Elkins here with us and prostate cancer survivor Tim Jessen. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. Or you can uh, send us an email. Uh, go to our website, www. FIU.org slash noon edition. I'll get to this email that we have in a minute, but I wanted to go back to Tim and, and talk about have you talk about the support group a little bit. How uh, when did you organize a support group and when does it meet and what kinds of things do you do? Well, we organized it about a year ago in, in October and, uh, and then it kind of fell by the wayside through the winter and then we uh, revived it again earlier this year and we decided not to have a meeting in December due to the holidays, but we will have a meeting the last Wednesday of January, probably at the Monroe County Library if they're available for us. Um, How do people find you? Well, (laughs) can I tell them, David? (laughs) Well, we'd be happy to have uh, folks call the office, uh, some urology office, and we're uh, available online and uh, through the uh, phone book. Mm -hmm. Uh, We'd be happy to forward the information on to Tim and who's been our uh, sponsors. We we try to have signs up in uh, Summit Urology and some of the doctor's offices, but we just haven't had the – the response. Uh, what we think, what I think, is what's really valuable for somebody that's just been diagnosed 
when they get over this fear of it and then they are told, well, you can have a prostatectomy, you can have the seed treatment, you can have radiation, you can have this. And also one thing we haven't mentioned is that right here in Bloomington, we have one of the very few uh, proton radiation therapy centers, that's M- MPRI, mm-hmm. up north of town. And um, so sometimes I think the, the patient feels, gosh, there are so many choices. I just wish the, the physician would just tell me this is the way to do it. But that's not the way uh, it generally happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we'd like to get the word out to more people. But the last Wednesday of January, we'll be at the Monroe County Library. Okay. Dr. So, Lee, um, mm-hmm. you're a, a, a radiation oncologist and um, proton therapy is another kind of radiation treatment. Could you kind of compare and contrast those for okay. use with prostate cancer? Well, for prostate – well, proton has a role in certain types of cancers and quite frankly, we're very pleased to have the proton center here. Uh, for pediatrics, uh, patients, kids with cancer, proton is definitely a benefit. But for prostate cancer, uh, proton versus what's called IMRT, which is intensely modulated radiation therapy, there really is no uh, difference between the two in terms of effectiveness and in terms of side effects. So the data that's coming out saying that they're very similar to either the proton or the IMRT, intensely modulated radiation therapy. The type of therapy that Bloomington Hospital has is they upgraded their equipment as well, just like with the Da Vinci, is we have something called RapidArc, which is the next generation of IMRT. Uh, the effectiveness and the side effects are same as the other therapies, but the good thing about the RapidArc is we don't have to put any markers in the prostate, and we don't have to put a rectal balloon for your daily treatments. So what we do is a mini CT scan before each and every therapy just to make sure that everything's on target. And the other good thing is it's called rapid art because the treatments can be done in about four to six minutes compared to other therapies can take 15 minutes or longer. So the quicker you're able to do the therapy, the more likelihood that everything will be on target. But all type of radiations is very similar in terms of the treatment, for, at least for prostate cancer. Mm-hmm. All right. Again, our phone number is 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. And you can send us an email to the website, wfiu.org slash noon edition. This is sort of a rare opportunity to talk about uh, prostate cancer. We do lots of programs on uh, breast cancer and breast cancer awareness. And as uh, Tim was kind enough to call us during one of those and suggest (laughs) this might be a a good educational opportunity. So we've taken it today. If you have any questions, give us a call here in the next 10 minutes. Um, I I wanted to sort of go back to the beginning because we really haven't talked much about the um, prevalence of prostate cancer and whether the what, what's happening in terms of statistics is prostate cancer detection on the rise. What about mortality and deaths from prostate cancer? Can any of you address that? Okay. In general, uh, we are finding more patients with prostate cancer. Quite frankly, if all males live long enough, we'll eventually get prostate cancer. That's just kind of the way it is. But if you detect it early enough, then we have much better results, just like the recent study that says for uh, types of cancers that have good screening processes, they do much better in terms of survival and cure rates. So in general, uh, we're detecting more of them, but actually we're doing better in regards to treatment. Okay. Um, You know, I I have this question written down on my list because I I saw this on a website this morning. I had no idea I was going to find this, but it said that uh, it was actually a story in the Times of India. There may have been others, but it said there's a recent report that an ingredient in beer may prevent prostate cancer. Are any of you familiar (laughs) with that? I haven't (laughs) heard that one. Okay. Maybe that was just uh, some the National Enquirer of India, but (laughs) it was apparently some sort of study that uh, the date on it was December 9th, so it was just this week. But uh, anyway, all right. We I'm sure go. it's good for many things. Yeah, all right. <laughs> we won't go down that path. All right. We have had a couple of emails. Here's um, one email. It says, as a six-year PC sur- prostate cancer, cancer survivor, Gleason 6, watchful waiting, is there a website uh, for prostate cancer survivors to read about diet? And also, is there a website for prostate cancer survivors in general that you would recommend? Thanks. This is a valuable discussion. Any where, where would you send people for information? I know someone in our support group talks about a uh, website on the that comes out of the New York Times, but I'm not. Uh, I don't have it. But if I'd be glad to try to locate it for this gentleman, if he would uh, want to. 
contact me. Mm-hmm. Now, let's, let me go back to that term that he used as a six-year prostate cancer survivor, Gleason 6, watchful waiting. Mm-hmm. That means he's chosen no treatment? Correct. And he's just, it's just waiting and monitoring, right? Right, especially since he has a Gleason grade of 6. Like I said before, this is more of the slow-growing type of cancers. Mm-hmm. So as long as the PSA doesn't do anything uh, very radical, then this can be watched by watchful waiting. Mm-hmm. And when, when would you, Dr. Lee, when would you recommend watchful waiting? Now, like I said, again, if I don't think the patient will be around, yeah, you know, okay. like three to five years, because then we have to weigh the, you know, the, the benefits of therapy with uh, whether we don't do any treatments, because if he has cardiac problems, diabetes, uh, then he may die from that before he does the prostate. And let's say if a patient gets diagnosed with a more aggressive cancer like lung cancer, then prostate cancer goes kind of on the back burner. Mm -hmm. Okay. We have another email, and it says, um, uh, at what what point do the side effects from various treatments plateau, and how much will they improve after that point? In other words, how long after treatment are the side effects as bad as they are going to get, and when are they as good as they are going to get? I'd I'd like to tackle this one, though. It's a very sensitive subject, because when the the men come to our group and also their their spouses, they, they want to know about erectile dysfunction. And um, David Elkins has a, a wide variety of therapies that he can suggest, and he's uh, very good to talk with men about that. And um, I find it uh, very interesting that uh, some of the effects of the uh, surgery um, after several years are much less than they were at the beginning. That, that it is possible for erectile function to uh, to be restored to some to some extent, mm-hmm. and um, that that I was told that in the beginning, but uh, it, it was a very interesting to, discovery on my part, and that's something that a lot of a lot of people worry about. So I'm bringing it out here. Sorry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I might add that uh, the return of erectile function a lot of times will take up to a year. Nerve uh, mm-hmm. tissue growth is uh, tremendously slow and arduous, and uh, does take time. Uh, we're uh, firm believers in uh, aggressive rehabilitative therapy, both from the erectile dysfunction standpoint as well as the incontinence standpoint. So uh, usually within a four weeks to six weeks after the prostatectomy, uh, I've got patients back in the office using medications such as Viagra if they're uh, medically able to tolerate those drugs. Uh, for the erectile dysfunction, we have other things like vacuum erection devices that assist. Uh, there's things like penile injection therapy that will actually dilate the blood vessels and uh, give erections. Uh, from the incontinence standpoint, uh, I also have a uh, biofeedback machine in the office that we use to improve the pelvic floor muscle function and regain continence very rapidly after surgery. And uh, you mentioned earlier, uh, I know that the technique used in surgery, uh, nerve sparing mm-hmm. technique is much more common today and, and it really does help a lot of these situations. So. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and keeping in mind, we do the nerve sparing when it's clinically possible to do that. These are far and above cancer operations. So if uh, the Gleason score, the the local uh, tissue planes don't allow for nerve sparing, obviously you have to look at it as a cancer operation first, but we certainly do the nerve sparing when possible. Mm-hmm. All right. We have a phone call. It's Chris on the phone. Chris? Yeah. Uh, I, I'm not sure if anybody's spoken about the PCA3 test and how that is used for diagnosis. Uh, we just actually um, started looking into that, uh, believe it or not, two weeks ago. So uh, uh, it's a test that's available to us, uh, uh, hot off the press in our office, so we are going to be using it. Um, and just to speak a, a brief amount about it, it's actually a, a tissue uh, sampling technique uh, that they look for uh, sort of predictive value of uh, how therapies will come out. Uh, it's such a new test to us that we really haven't uh, gotten a firm handle on how to utilize it yet. But it actually involves sending the prostate biopsy tissue off to a special lab, do some special stainings and uh, statistical analysis on that to look at those factors. And for that test, it's particularly useful for the intermediate risk patient because the low risk and high risk patients, the data and the therapy is pretty much a standard. It's just the intermediate risk if that uh, score turns out to be low, then we may treat it more as a favorable type of prostate cancer. And if that score turns out higher, then we'll treat it as more aggressive. So if you're in the intermediate risk category, I see there's a need and also a clinical benefit 
in, in order to guide our decisions in regards to therapy. Okay. Can I just ask a quick follow-up? Sure. Uh-huh. Um, I thought it was actually a urine-based test, and so maybe I have the wrong uh, name for it, but is there not as, um, a test where the prostate can get massaged and a follow-up urine sample can be analyzed to help determine whether prostate cancer is present? I thought that's what the PCA3 test is, and maybe I've got the wrong name. Do you know what I'm talking about? Or? I'm not aware of not that really. particular test, but the, okay. the PC3 plus is a uh, uh, histologic evaluation right. of the prostate can, uh, tissue. Okay. And, like, uh, and also it's based on the Gleason grade, so that tells you how important how things look under the microscope during the biopsy. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Thank you. All right, Chris. Thanks a lot for the call. We've got just about a minute, a minute and a half to go. I wanted to turn to David Elkins and say if, if a pa- new patient came into to, uh, your office, a, a man, and Wanted to know, wanted to ask about, you know, how often should I have a, a PSA? How often should I have a digital exam? How often, you know, what what would you tell them depending on, like, what their age was? Well, uh, obviously uh, the age of 50 is sort of the the breaking point. Uh, all men over the age of 50 should have a, a digital rectal examination, as embarrassing and horrible as it may seem, once a year. Uh, prostate-specific antigen blood test annually, and that can certainly be uh, completed by their family physician as part of a routine physical or very capable of doing that. If they have a strong family history of prostate cancer, usually recommend a baseline at age 40 and uh, annually after that. Uh, the new AUA guidelines uh, really state uh, age 40. That discussion should be uh, uh, brought up with uh, all, all men. So. Okay. And uh, and for the last thing that we want to talk about today, just Tim, <laughs> well, we're running out of time. But Tim, I want you again because you have the support group available for people and this is a, a subject that's difficult for a lot of men to talk about. Um, so your next meeting is the last Wednesday of last January? Last Wednesday of January, Monroe County Public Library. Right. We'll get some word out about it uh, after the new year. And to get information, you would call David's office, Summit Urology. And that would be fine. Can you give the number? Uh Three three two eight seven six five. Okay, I want to thank uh, our guest today. We are out of time. I want to thank uh, David Lee, Dr. David Lee, for being here. Physician assistant David Elkins and Tim Jessen. Thanks a lot for suggesting the show, Tim, and thanks for being here with us. <laughs> for you. Mary Catherine Carmichael uh, and for producer Ariana Prothero and engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Closets 2, providing organized and expanded closet and storage space for home, office, and garage using a variety of systems with no major renovations. Closets 2, owned and operated in Bloomington, 332-2233. Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Mother Bear's Pizza of Bloomington, open daily and offering pizzas, pasta dinners, and wings with daily specials. Menu available online at motherbearspizza.com, 332-4495 for delivery.